us, you know, we don't want Jesus, but they're open. God just graciously gives a window during the year for that. So this is a, a tremendous idea that somebody came up with, and the Samaritan's Purse is sponsored all these years. So if you haven't ever done it before, do it. If you have done it, keep on doing it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They sure will. That's right, Kate. Like Kate said, if you can't go shopping, they'll take your money. They're gracious that way. <laughs> All right, so we're going back here to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, I want to read uh, a couple of portions. One is back in chapter 3. As Jesus begins his... Uh, Public ministry in verse 13 of chapter 3. Let me see if I can find the right spot here. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he was consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now that's a, that's a very interesting experience there of Jesus, but really the focus is Jesus said, I, I need to be baptized by you. We've got to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus knew from the get-go that his purpose was to fulfill everything that God requires. And at the end of his life, as he's hanging on the cross, this is one of my favorite places to think. It is finished. So what he came to do, he completely did. And when he's dying on the cross, he says, it is finished. All righteousness has been fulfilled. Everything that God expected and required of Adam and Eve that they failed to do, that Israel failed to do, that everyone has ever failed to do, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus did it. He came to do it, and he did it. And so when we're, we're coming here into the, the, this transitional kind of an explanational few verses where we've come out of the Beatitudes where Jesus has defined the character of his people that are in the kingdom with those eight statements. And then he says, this is what they're going to be like. They're going to be the preservative and they're going to be the illuminators in this dark world. And so those people that are identified by the Beatitudes are light and they're salt. That's who we are. And now Jesus says, how is this possible? You know, how is it possible that these people... Uh, who have never really gotten their act together, have become salt and light. And he, he explains this, at least this is a, a great way to look at this, in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I just kind of broke this down in my own thinking process about three points because I'm a preacher. I don't know why I do three points. I did two last week, I think. I wasn't up to snuff. What Jesus did in the incarnation. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the curse of the law. That's what Paul says in Galatians. So in the fullness of time, which is kind of a, 
that's a kind of a puzzling statement. Why is it the fullness? Why didn't God do it here? Why didn't he do it there? And there's a lot of theologians look at reasons why that was the fullness of time. Maybe it was because the Roman Empire had this great road system, you know, and there was this lingua franca, you know, of, of Latin. And you had the Greek that was popular in the culture. And so things went rapidly. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the fullness of time is. We don't have to worry about what it was because that was the fullness of time when Jesus came. And he was born of a woman. He was born under the law. So Jesus himself placed himself, the author of the law, placed himself under the rules and the regulations that he had given to Israel to be in covenant relationship with God. He came and submitted himself totally to his father. He even submitted himself to be baptized. Why, why do we get baptized? For the remission of sin, huh? We do that in the, as a show of the fact that Christ Jesus is Lord and we have submitted to die with him and be raised up with him in new life. Jesus didn't have any sins to be remitted, did he? He didn't have any of that. But he came and totally identified with us, which is just a, a tremendous concept to think on. Is there anything greater than this, than, than God would incarnate himself and you know, limit himself to become like we are? This is just an extraordinary thing. You know, what, a, what a fantastic thing that we believe, that we believe that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And the reason he did it is to live under the law. Because he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to get rid of those. That's the way sometimes I was reading somewhere, and it might have been in D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I can't remember, but I was reading somewhere one time that, uh, that it was a pity that the New Testament was ever published apart from the Old Testament. Because we can begin to think, yeah, this is the important part right here. And say, so that's all, that's passe, that's passe, you know, that's... that's uh, out of time. We don't, we don't have to deal with that anymore. But Jesus didn't say that. And so when he would quote the scripture, and he quoted from everything from the Pentateuch all the way through the wisdom literature, all the prophets, he quoted extensively from every portion of the Old Testament, which gives credence and power to that, that he was living by that. To him, that was scripture, and he was that Im- embodied. And he said, this is the word of God. And not one dot, not one iota will perish from that until all is fulfilled. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. So Jesus in his substitutionary atonement for us completed the law. Because it had to be done, didn't it? If anybody's going to be related to God, there's got to be a fulfillment of everything that God requires. And we probably don't even know all that God requires. Right? If we're really good students of the Bible, we might. I mean, we get the big picture. We got to be perfect. That'd take a lot of work, wouldn't it? We just can't make that. For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus didn't come to abolish that and get it out of the way and say, oh, Ollie, Ollie, in free. It's all right, guys. Come on in. You know? But he went to the cross. So Isaiah 53, here's the prophet. Here's the, here's the Decalogue. Here's these Ten Commandments. You know, here's the, here's the law in its fullness, really the moral law. And we'll look a little bit more at the as, different aspects of the law. But here's the law. And, and you have to live by all these ten if you hope to get in. And so Jesus completed those. He did those perfectly. And then not only that. But you have to live up to the prophets. And the prophets did a couple of things. One is they foretold, they took of the law, they took of the covenant, the Pentateuch, especially in the historical books even. But they took of those and they said, this is what Israel, this is what you have to live by. 
Israel didn't do it, so they go into Syrian captivity. Then Judah didn't do it, and they go into Babylonian captivity. But in all of that, the prophets are saying, this is our problem right here. This is the existential threat, is the wrath of God, because we've not lived in covenant relationship with him. You know, wake up, smell the coffee, get back to this covenant relationship. But they didn't just foretell, they didn't just speak the truth, they foretold there's someone coming, there's this prophet that's coming that will be the one that not one of his words will fall to the ground. God will give you this prophet, and you'll hang on to every one of his words. And so when Jesus comes, he, he fulfills not only the foretelling, but the foretelling. He's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the one that's become the second Adam, Adam and Eve failed, you know. And they are, that whole idea, that whole concept, I know you're familiar with is the federal headship, you know, that, that, but the difference is, it's like, we elect these representatives, but nobody ever goes in unanimously, do they? You see that article in the Emerald Paper this last week about LBJ being angry on getting up on the ramp back in 1960, you know, and, and giving, giving the Amarillans the what for, because somebody was revving their airplane up behind him so nobody could hear JFK speak. Did you see that article? And then you remember what happened in 1967, you know? And uh, certainly have no connection there whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. But at any rate, you know, you got... What was I talking about that for? <laughs> what? Foretelling. I don't know if that's foretelling or not. Just kind of curious about it. Anyway, you see, so Jesus comes and he's, he's uh, completing what's been spoken that needs to be completed. Well, I know what it was. We elect these people. Nobody votes for them unanimously. Not even in Randall or Potter County. But in this election of God's, he's the only one that had a vote. And he said, I elect Jesus to be the federal head. He put Adam in as the federal head, and when Adam sinned and rebelled against God, we all, we all died. All of creation's broken, isn't it? Everything's broken. Our genetic code is broken. Our bodies, that's why we die, because sin has come upon everyone. Everything's broken. The way we think's broken. The way we emote's broken. The way we choose. Everything is broken. All creation is broken. Lions eat lambs, you know. Snakes bite people and kill them. Everything's broken. The, there's global warming. We are the cause of global warming, aren't we? Sin caused global warming. It wasn't ever going to get warmer. It's always going to be perfect. It's going to be like Hawaii on the perfect day in paradise forever. But sin broke that. And so Jesus sent another, or excuse me, the Father sent another and said, I have elected Jesus to be the new federal head. And all who believe in him will participate, be joined with him because he joined himself with them. So this whole idea of union with Christ is really the secret to the Christian life, isn't it? If there's a secret. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a mystery. But this is, this, is the, this is the fulfillment of the Christian life, that we are in union with Christ Jesus. We are now, right now, this, this Sunday, you know, November 12th, right here where we are, and through the rest of the week and going forward, we're in union with Christ. So whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? It is finished. That sounds really good. And we'll look and see why it doesn't feel that good sometimes. But that's, that's the reality of what God has done in Christ Jesus. That Jesus fulfilled all the things required, but he had, he'd be paid a great price. Because somebody owes a debt. That, I was thinking of, uh, yeah, it's probably Keith Green. Somebody wrote a song one time, you know, about 
about uh, that this price has to be paid, but who would be good enough to pay that price for me and you? Well, it was Jesus, wasn't it? He paid the price that we might not only be restored, but we might share in all things with him. And so Jesus accomplishes this in his uh, incarnation because the soul that sins dies. So in Christ Jesus, death meets its death. He died and he came up on the other side. And all that participate with him, though they die, yet shall they live because death's been defeated. It's, it's, the, it's the whole victory motif of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where we're told about the resurrection of Jesus, and then in, in our time, we'll be resurrected with him. So he did this in order to fulfill the law and the prophets. The penalty that the prophets and the law speak about for sin, Jesus had to fulfill that. But he, he, didn't just, he just didn't complete that, but he really came and showed exactly what the law really meant, what, like Will was talking about this morning. He showed what the law was really like embodied. If it was lived out, what does the law look like? So this is an important concept for us to think because uh, Jesus didn't come to, to dumb the law down, to make it easier to relate to God. And the law never justified anyone. It was never, his purpose was never employed to justify anybody. Nobody's ever justified by keeping the law except Jesus. He's justified by keeping the law. And those who are in union with him then share in that justification. They have a perfect, right relationship with God because Jesus died in their place. He took the penalty in their place, even after he had lived perfect according to God's standard and then taken himself to the cross and offered himself up. So the soul that sins dies. Jesus never sinned, so his soul didn't die. What do we do by faith in Christ? Here's this. I want to read this to you. This is, this is always an astounding thing to me when I read this. Romans chapter 3 and uh, verse 21 at the end of his, his really indicting Jews and Gentiles alike, Paul segues into the rest of the gospel. In verse 21 of chapter 3, he says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For he holds that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Isn't that interesting? Because he's, this is the gospel herald guy here, you know, Paul, who uh, had worked his way all of his life trying to please God, trying to live up to the standard that he saw written in the Old Testament law, and he finally just collapsed under the weight of it. It's confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus. And he says, but we uphold the law by faith. Isn't that an interesting thing to think about? Certainly we uphold the law by faith because we have trusted in Christ Jesus. But then there's even more than that. We've, that, that law begins to be written upon the tablet of our heart, and our desire is to fulfill that law. And we begin living in obedience to God. We, really, we make real progress. 
Isn't that something? We make real progress. We become holy. Holy is not an experience. Holiness is obedience to Christ Jesus. And we learn this obedience through the discipline of God over however many years God allows us from the time that we acknowledge Christ as Lord until we see Him face to face. So we're on this upward trail, obeying Christ Jesus, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting on the new man, putting off the old. Or in the case of a woman, putting on the new woman and putting off the old. Okay? So here we are, upholding the law by faith, at least from two different perspectives. That law has nothing on us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Those who set their mind on the Spirit, who walk by the Spirit, to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. But it's life and peace to set our mind. Where our mind is, that's where we act, isn't it? That's where we begin to go. So the windshield of our life gets filled with the vision of Jesus. So we don't have these distractions, these legalisms, these, these laws, you know, these, these uh, traditions that we begin to replace Jesus with, which we all have a tendency to do. But the windshield of our life gets filled with Christ Jesus. I, I watched this uh, show with uh, Denise on Netflix. It was a reality show out of Canada called uh, Canada's Worst Driver. Have you ever seen that show? Pretty funny. It, you only get about fifty percent of the dialogue because of the cursing. They have to blink. They have to blink it all out, you know. <laughs> but Canada's worst driver. One of the things they teach these people that are just the, you cannot believe how terrible people drive unless you drive an Amarillo at eight o'clock going to the hospital district. But you know these people are just they're clueless. And so one of the things they try to teach them to do is they have all these styrofoam barriers and they have these these big uh, arches made out of styrofoam. And they're just wide enough. They probably have about a foot on either side, and they're supposed to slalom through those. It's funny just watching them demolish the styrofoam all over this airport. <laughs> anyway, they say, watch where you're going. Drive, you know, watch where you're going because that's where you're going to go. If you look at the styrofoam, where are you going to go? You're going to go right through the styrofoam. So look at that eye there and go through there. Whatever we're looking at, whatever our view is, if the windshield of our life is filled with Jesus, that's where we're going to go. We're going to love to obey Him. We're going to be fashioned more and more into His character, into His person. But if we're looking at sin, if we're looking at traditions, we're going to be veering off the course all the time. So we have to become righteousness-minded. We have to live, we have to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Because setting our mind on the flesh is a wreck. It is a wreck. And there's nothing we can do to improve the flesh. The, fre- the flesh is unimprovable. And unfortunately, well, it's just the reality is we've all got flesh, don't we? Nobody here, is anybody here in their resurrection body yet? You know, there are groups of people that claim that. I've run into some of them on occasion. The body of Christ. We are already in our glorified body. Oh, yeah? Really? Doesn't look that good. <laughs> yeah. But there are people that believe that. That they've been perfected, that they're not going to die, that they don't have to do away with this old flesh. When Jesus comes, that old flesh will be taken right up in there because they're, what a, man, that's some deception there. So, we keep, we keep the law by faith. Our faith is reckoned to us, is accounted to us as the same righteousness that Jesus has. That's an astounding theological fact that has tremendous repercussions in our Monday through Saturday behavior. If our mind is set on the Spirit, it changes the way we respond to things. Because if, if Jesus is full of grace, and He is, if Jesus is 
full of the Spirit of God, and He is. And we have every right and every, every option to draw from Him, from the wells of salvation. Then whenever we are tempted to impatience, instead we can set our mind on the Spirit and draw from Christ patience. Because He is full of patience. Or goodness, or kindness, or self-control. Because Jesus is all of that in spades, and that's been given to us to draw from. If we set our mind on the Spirit, rather than on the sin. Okay? We can't deny sin, except deny it in the sense of letting it control our lives. We can't deny that it's there that temptations come. But we can't deny giving it access to manipulate us, because we can really be obedient from the heart. That's the new standard Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. We've been made obedient from the heart. So what we do by faith, we keep this law. But there are these aspects to the law, aren't there? And, and I don't understand all this, but I understand some of it. The law really breaks down into three portions. Ceremonial, which has to do with sacrifices, you know, and, and how all the temple accoutrements and how those function and everything. Well, we know by Hebrews that that's no longer in force, is it? Because Jesus fulfilled all of those types and shadows. He, he, he fulfilled all of that. We don't have to observe days and months and weeks and fasts and all those different things in order to be made right with God. They never worked that way anyway. They never made anybody right with God. But they were a foreshadow of, of the completion of the perfection of what God requires. And Jesus fulfilled all those ceremonial laws. Then the judicial laws of, of the Old Testament that had to do with making Israel a separate nation. Those things are done away because those barriers have been broken down. Now Jew and Gentile, male, female, they're all one. The church is the Israel of God, Paul says. So all people have been brought right with God, all people who are right with God, by faith in Christ Jesus, because he has fulfilled those things. But the moral law, love God with all your heart and your neighbor yourself, that's never been abrogated, won't ever be abrogated. The other part has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus and has been stamped yea and amen. Those shadows, those types have been removed. We don't have to live by that anymore. But once we've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, our desire is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors, ourselves. That's never abrogated. That's not, going to, that's not going anywhere. Jesus didn't come to abolish that. But the problem was, evidently, that there were these questions that were coming up because of Jesus' behavior. They're thinking, well, listen, the Pharisees, the scribes, they are the, you know, they are the, the standard of righteousness and holiness in Israel in the first century. They started in about the, the mid-2nd century B.C., you know, when the Maccabees took over and Israel was free for a little bit, an independent nation, very short period of time. And the Pharisees came up out of that because they were so devoted, they wanted the worship of God to be pure and undefiled. And so they started out good, just like what Will was saying this morning. But they ended up over a period of time replacing God's word with their traditions to the point of denying even the, the fifth command. Well, honor your father and mother. Well, I don't have to do that if I'm giving to missionaries. It's more important to give to missionaries or, you know, this money is dedicated to God. I don't have to worry about taking care of my folks, you know. And so they begin to deny the law, and they've set up all these rules. What did, what did Will say this morning? I've never read the, the Talmud, but 800 pages on the Sabbath. That's an interesting read. Uh, so here you've got 800 pages on the Sabbath. They've got all these rules. What can, how many steps can I take in which direction on the Sabbath in order to not be working? You know, whatever. They wrote down all these different things, and they replaced the law because they were all about looking good. They were all about their own glory. They were all about being self-satisfied. Am I doing well? Does this look good to those people that I'm around on the Sabbath and in the community? And that began the, the ruling model of righteousness for Israel. 
And Jesus comes along, and what he's doing says, that, that's not right. I'm showing you what it is to fulfill the law and the prophets, and it has nothing to do with what these guys have been doing. And so in place of the Beatitudes spoken over you and I who have followed after Christ Jesus, the Pharisees get the woes, right? Matthew chapter 23, he speaks woes to them because all of their religion is what? Basically, it's external. Woe to you, hypocrites. You put on a nice mask. You look really good in public. You're great at taking praise from other folks. Well, that kind of speaks to me sometimes. How about you? <laughs> you know, you're great about that. But he said, that's not it. It's not the externals. It's the reality of a heart that desires the God who made you righteous. And so, there's a, to me, about the best example I've ever read about this that kind of sticks in my mind is J.I. Packer. And he's, I was reading a book one time, and he was talking about, he was talking about the Book of Common Prayer. You know, I've never read the Book of Common Prayer. I probably ought to. I've read some prayers out of the Book of Common Prayer. And I know they're really good. But he said, you know, and he's an Anglican, so that's why he's so familiar with it. He says, you know, the, the Book of Common Prayer, he said, these prayers are like the clothes of your big brother, your big sister. And when you first start reading them, you know, you kind of have to roll up some of the, the legs on them. They're a little bit too big for you. But as you pray them, you begin to grow in to what they're saying, to what they reveal. And that's really the way that we are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus, doubly guarded by the wrapping of God's hand. But we got a lot of growing to do, don't we? we got to grow up into what it is that God has given us. And as we desire and pursue Jesus, as we obey Him and put to death the deeds of the flesh, we grow up in Him and our delight is in the law of the Lord. We delight in the law. We don't say, oh man, I'm glad that's gone. I'm glad I don't have to love my neighbor like I love myself anymore that Jesus has got rid of. No, He didn't abolish that. He came to fulfill that. And so, as He speaks that, He's making this... this Transitional statement, of how, you know, how, how is it possible for people like us to be lights and salt? It's because of his substitutionary atonement. And it's what we accomplish by faith, believing that that atonement was done for us. That the sentence for our unrighteousness was taken into the body of a perfect lamb, a sacrifice from the foundation of the earth, who lived up to every standard, who did everything just the way that he intended and he did it for our sake. See where I'm at here. The law and the prophets. Okay, that, so we know that's the entire Old Testament canon, right? That everything that's written in the Old Testament, when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, and all of that being uh, established and completed to him forever and ever, that's speaking about everything in the Old Testament. I, I remember hearing a guy, I got a quote from him here, S.M. Lockridge. You ever hear of S.M. Lockridge? He was a black preacher, I think, in Los Angeles. He's probably been dead 20, 20 years or so now. But he spoke at First Baptist one time, like in the late 70s. And I went with a group of people to, to listen to him. And you know, you know how black preachers get that cadence and the alliterations, man, they just go on for 30 minutes. You go, how do they do that? But I remember this statement he made. I wrote it down in one of my Bibles on his current time. I make it my obsession to make my possession equal my profession. I make it my obsession to make my possession equal my profession. Because our profession is what? Jesus Christ is my righteousness. He is my holiness. He is my wisdom. He is my sanctification. He is everything to me. And so 
the disciple then turns and says, I will make that an experience just as it is by faith. And so that's what S.M. Locker just saying. It's uh, Christ's life and me, my, not my best imitation or best effort toward being like Jesus. It's really his life in me. For me to live is Christ. And to die is going to be gain. But now to live is Christ. So we have Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And this is an amazing thing. Uh, I was reading, the, reading a book called uh, Goliath Must Fall by a, guy, by a guy named Louis Giglio. He's a young... Uh, Reformed tradition Baptist guy in Atlanta. And uh, one of the confessions he says that we need to make in our daily life, this one chapter he says, we need, to, we need to say something like this. Right here, right now, I believe in the power that's in Jesus' name. Right here, right now, sitting at this traffic light, sitting at this table with this person, right here, right now, I believe in the power of Jesus' name. And so I started thinking about that, and I started driving around saying that. Okay, right here, right now, I believe in the power of Jesus' name. Not someday, right here, right now, I believe in the power of Jesus' name. And then I started thinking some other, who loved me and gave himself for me, who rose up and went to the right hand of the Father and is ever living, making intercession for me, and sent His Spirit to live in me, who prays perfectly through me. Because I think, how anemic, how weak are my prayers? But I've got the Holy Spirit. He makes those prayers a perfect connection with Christ Jesus, who is also praying for me. Right here, right now, I believe in the power of Jesus' name. Does that change things? No, but it's going to change the way I act in life. And then it might change some things. If I act differently, who knows what God might do? But it changes me to realize this truth that I'm to pursue Jesus like he pursued me in a totally secure environment. Isn't this something? This is a totally secure, this is not an experiment. This is not, well, I hope this works well, that I don't fall out of the grip of God. Well, we already know, Jesus said, no one can take you out of my Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. Well, that's good to know, isn't it? Because this exercise is done without training wheels. You know, so here we are living out this life of faith, and sometimes our faith may not connect. Sometimes we may not keep it up, but that's all right, because it's already been done. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them, not because I needed to fulfill them, he said. Jesus didn't say, I needed to prove myself. Jesus didn't need to prove anything. He came to do that for us because we couldn't get it done. And we tried. Oh, Lord knows we tried. We tried in a lot of different ways, but we try. And it drives us to all kinds of self-medicating operations. Sometimes those are religious operations. Sometimes they're drugs. Sometimes they're sex. Sometimes, you know, they're greed. Whatever they are. But it drove us to that. And Jesus said, hey, I've got you covered. I have fulfilled that. And when we see that, guess where our heart will turn? Our windshield is going to get full of Jesus. And we're going to say, I want to make it my obsession. To make my possession equal my profession. I want to know him like he knows me. And we're going to start going that direction. We're going to pursue him. And we're going to fall down. You know, Denzel Washington, he's my favorite actor. He's a devout believer. Comes out of a Pentecostal background. and always, always likes to make his movies with a redemptive end in them. And he said, uh, he said, a lot of people say, you need something to fall back on. He said, man, he said, if I fall, I want to fall forward. 
So that's what Christians do because we're pursuing Jesus, so we fall forward. But, but if which, whichever direction we fall, we have this, this huge palm that we fall into. It's the hand of God. And so we get up and go again. So the life of the Pharisees versus disciples, I already mentioned that a little bit about the Beatitudes and the woes. And uh, you can read those woes there. They're very sobering. So here I want to read this to you because this is what it is to make it our obsession, to make our possession equal our profession. Here's a guy that's written the book on the gospel. Philippians chapter 3. I really think this is, for my, for my thinking, this is like uh, Paul's most mature writing. I love this book. He tells us to rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things to you. is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. He goes on to talk about all the reasons that he might have confidence in who he is. And he's got a lot of them. And, I mean, he's got, the, he's got the right genealogy. He's done the right things. He's pursued, you know, diligently what he saw as righteousness. But he says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so here we, we have this... Uh, calling to the, what Paul would say was the normal Christian life, pressing on, constantly pressing on, not pressing on because we're afraid it's going to fall out behind us because he already knows Jesus has made him his own. He says that. But pressing on because he wants to know as he's been known. This is his, this is his big appetite. A man's appetite, a man's hunger works for him. It does, doesn't it? That's what it says in Proverbs. So whatever our appetite is, it draws us on. It drives us on. If we take... I heard Larry Lee, a guy one time that wrote a big book on prayer. He had this concept that he pulled out of Psalm 37. He said, uh, he says, you know, if we, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desire of our heart. And he's talking about prayer. He said, prayer is a big part of that. But he says, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desire of our heart. But there's another D in between the delight and the desire. And it's discipline in it. There has to be a discipline. That discipline is generated by grace. Our appetite works for us. I want to be, I want to encounter, I want to know Jesus in all of his righteousness. I want to put aside everything else. I want to know him. I want to know what it's like, you know, to know the power of his resurrection. And so we begin to pursue that. We discipline ourselves to go after that. We, uh, well, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as Paul talks about how he beats his body into submission. That is the flesh. So this is, this is just the normal Christian life. It's not super sainthood. It's just the normal Christian life. And if we, if we have a mind in any other way than this, to pursue Christ Jesus with all that we have as our goal in life, then God will make that known to us. How does he make that known to us? 
I think a lot of it comes in dissatisfaction. We're dissatisfied where we are with what we got. We got it all, and now we're dissatisfied with it. We, well, we tried this, we tried that, and we, you know, we're just frustrated. And I think God lets that frustration and that dissatisfaction just kind of weigh on us. I had a lady one time, I don't know if you believe stuff like this, but I do, but this lady, this was years and years ago, 35 years ago probably, this lady, this kind of a spacey lady, she, she said, I've been praying for you. And I said, I appreciate that. She said, God said he's heavy hands upon you. Heavy hands on me. So I looked up heavy hand. Well, you really don't want the heavy hand of God on you. When she first said it, I thought, that's good, you know. And it's not that good. <laughs> because it's about his discipline. And he disciplines us lots of times by making us dissatisfied. He makes us frustrated. He said, listen, are you enjoying that? But you will enjoy Jesus. When you pursue Him, when you put aside the other things and you pursue Him, you begin to fulfill all righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus, and that righteousness, that holiness becomes who you are. Because you can't stay connected to Jesus. You can't keep your face on Jesus and be untransformed. When you look to Jesus, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. You can look out the side window at church and religious practices and not be transformed. But you can't keep looking at Jesus and not be transformed. You ever tried to drive through the rearview mirror? It doesn't work very well, does it? So we grow in this way. It's an active life of holiness, of obedience. We grow by speaking the truth in love. We grow up into the fullness of Christ Jesus. So here's a thought for you, besides having your appetite work for you. If you're a Pharisee, your best is not good enough. You ever run up against that? Your best is not good enough. To the struggler, your faith in Christ is sufficient. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think? Your faith in Christ is sufficient. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Because you got these people, you got these Pharisees. Jesus comes in and says, Woe to you, Pharisees! Woe to you! Hypocrites! You're painting the outside of the tombs, you know, of the prophets that you killed. Woe to you, Pharisees, trying to look good for men. Tithing mint and dill and coming, giving 10% of everything you got, but showing no mercy. You have no heart. Woe to you. But to you who labor and desire to be satisfied and long to satisfy God, come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'll give you rest. Wow. For those who struggle, for those who are longing and striving, Jesus says, hey, I am your sufficiency. I've got it covered. I fulfill the law and the prophets for you. Come to me. So each person has to test themselves, don't we? We have to test ourselves. In our dissatisfaction, our frustration, maybe we're looking out the side window. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're looking at something other than Jesus because Jesus satisfies. He satisfies. We can't lay any blame on him. He's already fulfilled the law and the prophets. And he did it for us, you know. Or if we think we're doing really good, that, man, I've really done a good, oh, woe to us. Woe to us. There's the sweet spot, isn't it? It's in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for, for how great you are. God, in your greatness, you know, just thinking about the idea of you always being before there was anything that we might know as material you were. God, you're greater than 
You're greater than any imagination. You're greater than Stephen Hawking can think sitting in his chair, God. He, he has no clue how great you are. And yet in Christ Jesus, we see you fully. Many times and in various ways you spoke in the, the prophets. You revealed yourself in the law, but in these days you've revealed yourself in Christ Jesus who's fulfilled all of these things for us, God, that we might know you, we might delight ourselves in you, that God, even in struggling, we might know that you've secured our destiny, you've made us, God, pleasing in your sight, all through faith and the one who is and who was and who is to come, and the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. So right here, right now, we believe in the power that's in the name of Jesus. And we receive that, and we bless you for it, God. And all these things, we give you thanks. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great afternoon.